Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. former soldier is to face murder charges over Bloody Sunday. We approach our responsibilities with complete impartiality, but not without compassion. And as politicians argue over Brexit, how the military is coping. We have definitely done some stockpiling in minor areas. To be 100% safe, we need to do so. It's just prudent military planning. It's almost five decades since the events of Bloody Sunday. 13 people were shot dead at a civil rights march in Londonderry, one of the darkest days of the Troubles. A 12-year public inquiry led to a formal apology from the British government and a new police investigation. Well, today, the Northern Ireland's Director of Public Prosecutions, Stephen Heron, announced the outcome. A decision has been taken to prosecute one former soldier, Soldier F., for the murder of James Ray and for the murder of William McKinney. Well, he says there's insufficient evidence to prosecute the other 16 former soldiers who'd been under investigation. I am acutely aware that it has been a long road for the families to reach this point and today will be another extremely difficult day for many of them. As prosecutors, we approach our responsibilities with complete impartiality, but not without compassion for all those who are impacted by our decisions. In Derry, relatives of the victims said they were disappointed. Geraldine Doherty's nephew, Gerald Donaghy, was among the victims. She said those in charge of operations on Bloody Sunday should be held to account. We maintain that key individuals in the army, in politics and beyond, should also be held to account for their actions on that day and afterwards. This affront must also be rectified if justice is to be truly done and seen to be done. Well, with me in the studio is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Christopher, you sat through pretty much all of that Savile inquiry, the 12-year inquiry. Why was it such a big deal at the time and continue to be so now? For the next generation, it's like this. In 1969, the uh, then uh, Home Secretary, uh, Mr Callaghan, had to send in troops, was asked to send in troops in Northern Ireland. Why? Um, And that was because there was marching, gunfire, the divisions between the nationalists, the Protestants and the the Catholics had become strong and couldn't be contained by the police and the police specials and the army that was already in Lisbon. Now, we come to 72, when this happened in January 72, the government had just announced that the situation was so bad that they were going to introduce something called internment. In other words, people would just be thrown in the slammer, uh, interrogated and see what happened next. And that was the reason there was a big march going on in Derry that day. This group was, uh, if you like, sent to test another part of Derry and the paras, who were going to be the people who would try and control it, were considered the rottweilers of the army by the, uh, by, the, by the IRA and a lot of other people. Now, that's the size of the problem, as it was. It was tense, uh, and we'd not seen anything like that 
on that control in, in, in the whole of Northern Ireland. Mm, and also joining me today is Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Good to speak to you today, Michael. Um, we should remember the impact of the events on Bloody Sunday, not least in inspiring a whole lot of people to join the IRA. Yes. Uh, I mean, on the top of internment, which was a, a public relations disaster for the British government, the uh, the Bloody Sunday events, and they were very confused at the time, and there have been other things happening before that as well, all that created an image that, that British um, control of Northern Ireland had simply broken down. And in fact, in a way, that was true at the time. Um, people should also remember that the, the army and the police service of Northern Ireland, as it, uh, in its previous iteration, actually did get control again by about 1974, 1975, and the IRA were on the back foot from then onwards. But this particular time, 1972, was probably the worst time for the Troubles in terms of the image of disorder and what was happening on the streets. So this, this, was, this was just what the army and the, and the, uh, the government in Westminster did not need, a nasty incident, which, of course, has, has plagued British politics in its various forms for the last 50-odd years or almost 50 years. Part of my job was to go through the papers, uh, the government papers, uh, records and private diaries of what happened in the sort of just a couple of days before this before this went on for the then Prime Minister, uh, uh, Edward Heath, and the Defence Secretary, um, uh, Lord Carrington. Fascinating that they were briefed in London. There was never any suggestion that they had to do anything, as they kept calling it. Is there anything we can do? The briefing they were getting from the chief of the defence staff uh, and also the commanding officer, commanding general in Northern Ireland, um, was that, no, this should not be a big thing. It shouldn't break down to anything like this. You can then leap forward to a whole 10 years of the Savile Inquiry named after the, uh, the Lord, uh, Lord Justice that uh, chaired it, that looked for what was in a small space, very small space, it's, it's like a crossroads, a corner uh, in, in Derry, uh, with the Paras, who were energetic to say the very, very least, as one of the uh, defence lawyers put it, um, and a small group of people who were, as far as the army was concerned, were probably terrorists, as we'd now call them, but IRA, and they, they meet each other. And it sparked, something sparked off. And from that point, you couldn't stop it. Now, if you leap forward to our present times, chiefs of staff sit there and talk about what happened in uh, Bloody Sunday, and they put it into the context of fighting a war in Iraq, for example, where you have to be really, really, really careful that at any time you may be answered for whatever actions your battalion, your, your squadron, and maybe even your grade uh, uh, takes. And that is why there is a direct connection with the, uh, the forces today and the security tablet today as there was with uh, Bloody Sunday. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Still to come, why are we getting a new Gurkha battalion? Plus, the US piles more pressure on allies over Huawei and a new guide to walking the liberation route taken at the end of the Second World War. The FBS Zip Rep.
It's been another chaotic week at Westminster as MPs struggle to find a way forward on Brexit. It's technically two weeks until we're due to leave the EU, but that now seems impossible. If Theresa May's deal is agreed, it's likely to take effect at the end of June. Otherwise, there could be a long delay. But where does all of this uncertainty leave the military, not least those currently based in EU countries? Well, our reporter in Cyprus, Simon Newton, spoke to General Sir Christopher Deverell, who's Commander Joint Force Command. He insists he's still relatively confident. All the indications are that everything will continue pretty much as usual the day after Brexit, whether it's a deal or in a no-deal scenario. Uh, On the driving licence question, the answer is no. There will not be a requirement for people to get hold of Cypriot or international driving licences to be able to continue to drive in Cyprus. On the post, if there is a no-deal situation, then there will be some processes need to be put in place to ensure that the mail is appropriately dealt with, but I don't anticipate they will have a big impact on people. So is there any thought, perhaps, opening a port, reopening the mole, for instance, in Akrotiri? No, there will be no need for a, a new port for us or anything else, another military port. We will be able to continue to operate using the facilities that we do today. Would people need visas, for instance, to come here? No, don't expect them to do so. All the indications are that things will stay pretty much as usual going forward, whether we have a deal or in the event of no deal. Our relationship with the Republic of Cyprus will change in that we will no longer be partners within the EU. Whether that has any impact on our, our influence with them, our partnership with them, what, what can you say about that? All the indications are that both parties to this conversation are really keen to continue with business as usual. There are all kinds of reasons why that would be so. I'm really confident that the relationship going forward will be as positive as it is now. Just coming back to the SBAs, you've probably read these stories about stockpiling of food and these forward purchase goods. Is there any truth in that? We have to think about all possible scenarios. And we have definitely done some stockpiling in in minor areas where we think to be 100% safe, we need to do so. It's just prudent military planning. We, We just want to be utterly certain that we can continue all our operations without being affected at all the day after Brexit. That was General Sir Christopher Deverell speaking to Simon Newton. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, despite the vote against a no-deal Brexit, EU officials say that is still an option. What kind of implications would that have for security cooperation between Britain and the EU? Um, in the defence field, uh, not wouldn't change very much uh, formally, but in the in the deeper security field, it's massive, because if you think about policing and um, cooperation in, in all the policing databases, that's in, in, enormously important, because uh, the European arrest warrant is now fundamental to the way we do our work. The um, uh, Schengen two, it's called a Schengen two information system, has about 90 million items on it. We access it literally millions of times a year. And the police have made it very clear. They said if they if they can't access the the Schengen two system, uh, which has been a game changer for them, that's the way it is, they describe it. Then they'd be severely hampered. I mean, you know, before we had a European arrest warrant, we used to arrest and deport about 30 people a year. Now we arrest and deport about 15 to 20,000 a year. Mm. I mean, the, the, you know, everything is different as far as policing goes. And that's partly because of terrorism and serious organised crime. So that's where if a no deal would be disastrous on, on all of those levels. So for policing, a little bit for intelligence, um, uh, that would that would be important mm. for the for the military, the formal military. I mean, all those links exist outside the EU. 
and we're very strong in those areas compared to our EU partners. So what Chris Devereux was saying in Cyprus, I think is absolutely true that you know the Cypriots will want to do to make everything as normal as possible. Might not be quite so straightforward in Germany, mm. I have to say, because I think German authorities will be a bit more assiduous um, on enforcing rules than the Cypriot authorities might have been. Christopher Lee. Um, but in general, I, I think it's, it's the police who will worry about a no deal rather than the military. Just two quick points on the, uh, one is the shorter term and one is the longer term. Uh, Shorter term, some commands, for example, uh, become difficult and some commands have been switched to other countries because, for example, Deputy Sakir, who is is British, uh, in certain circumstances, uh, he would be taking command of a a European scenario, uh, but not as a European in that sense, and therefore that becomes becomes difficult. And there are other uh, commands as well, lesser commands, where that's happened, that a force with its primary Euro- European uh, context and setup uh, can't be commanded by somebody who isn't a member of the EU. But remember, uh, mm. you know, Britain moves, it's still NATO. The other thing is long-term defence. Funding. If the if the government of the Bank of England is right and there's an eight percent drop in the economy over mm. a longer period, then whatever the whatever the uh, whatever the the uh, Treasury was saying yesterday, uh, it cannot guarantee the money that it's promised to the Defence Ministry over a period of say, as the governor says, over a period of about sort mm. of five to seven years. You then start to look at maybe projects, maybe major projects, which either have to be slipped. Or, or, or disappear out of the British all back altogether. There's a thought. Now, now Michael Clark, we heard earlier about the military stockpiling some supplies just in case of problems of a no-deal Brexit. Um, we also know the military's on standby to help if there are supply problems at home, but it wouldn't look great internationally, would it, if the army had to help in getting food or medicines to people in the UK? Is that a likely scenario, do you think, if it comes to that? Well, they've been planning for it uh, since uh, the autumn, uh, Operation Yellowhammer, and all three services are involved. And I was talking to somebody involved in Yellowhammer in the early stages, and he was saying, I said, well, what are you really preparing for? And he obviously couldn't say too much about it, but he said basically everything. <laughs> so, you know, everything you can think of, we've we've got to draw up a contingency plan. So at the very, at one extreme, it's dealing with civil disturbances, which, you know, one would hope that's way off the scale, but that's one one thought, through to um, back it, backfilling um, police or emergency services so that they can be out and about doing what whatever might need to be done. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the military is very aware of the fact that if people in combats start to turn up, you know, driving vehicles or bringing supplies in in military vehicles, it will look very, very bad because then, you know, the whole country will feel as if it's some, somehow under uh, under a, a threat. Um, and so what the military is preparing to do is, is in a sense, to use its logistics in the background so that these ordinary civil authorities can be seen to be getting on with their work. Mm. Now, earlier this year, newspapers reported that the UK's infantry battalions were as much as 30% short of their normal staffing requirements. The Ministry of Defence has been condemned by a committee of MPs for signing what was described as an abysmal deal to outsource recruitment to a private firm, Capita. But could the Gurkhas be the solution to this problem? Well, this week the MOD confirmed a new Gurkha battalion will be formed, a specialist infantry battalion which will begin recruiting later this year. Well, joining us for more on this is Robert Fox, who's the defence editor of London's Evening Standard newspaper. Hello, Robert. Um, We already knew Gurkha recruitment is at its highest level in more than 30 years. So was this announcement a surprise? Hello, Robert. Can you hear me? Christopher, what do you think? Do you think this was a a surprise? No, it wasn't a surprise because it had been announced that this is one of the things they were looking at. But what we shouldn't think, this this is not the MOD 
as much as one would suspect it might be, uh, grabbing hold of the Gurkhas, say, right, put together another uh, uh, sort of specialist uh, infantry uh, battalion, and that will get us over the the problem of not having enough soldiers at the time. You know, we want 85, or the government wants 85,000 in in the British Army. Uh, At the moment, it's lucky to find 75,000. If you were a battalion, you're only going to find, what, Seven, eight hundred, Mike. No mm. more than that with with the Gurkhas. You know, and the Gurkhas, you know, being an infantry battalion, and also Gurkhas, it's not as if they can do any job. You can't just slot them in anywhere. It's it's a, it is a specialist battalion. Ah, I believe we've got Robert Fox now on the phone. Um, sorry about the technical difficulties. Robert Fox is the defence editor of London's Evening Standard newspaper. And now, Robert, the MOD talks about the Gurkhas' exceptional military aptitude and outstanding reputation all of which is true, but the timing does make it look like the Gurkha's chief advantage right now is a willingness to join up that isn't matched in the UK. Oh, yes. Um, that they, it, it, it is highly contested to get a place um, in the British Gurkha uh, military units. Remember, Gurkha serve elsewhere under the so-called tripartite agreement on the independence of, uh, of India. It was roughly a, a, a three-way split. But the top have always aspired uh, to go to the British Army in the selection process. I'm sure Christopher Lee would agree with this. It's actually proved very, very expensive. They've been throwing out talent. It's quite expensive to recruit them. And in fact, there was a general mood in the MOD itself uh, to run the Gurkhas down. Now they're running them back up again for all the reasons that you have indicated and a lot more. Mm, and will they be a good fit? Will this kind of battalion be a good fit with other infantry battalions? Well, it's very interesting as to what this uh, battalion is going to do because um, uh, the Secretary of State, Gavin Williamson, said it was specialist and then didn't specify. I think that this is in line very much with the new conception of the British Army, with these uh, very highly specialised, small, elite um, infantry units, which was announced, I think, in the 2015 um, review, and they're very much seen to fit into that picture. They will be given specialist equipment. They are there to be uh, at the cutting edge, and they're with, uh, they fit in with the Army's new way of warfare, the new... Um, Uh, conceptions that have been unveiled slowly through the Agile Warrior exercises, and it very much fits in uh, uh, with that picture. But on the whole, in the Army, I've I've been alongside uh, the Parachute Regiment uh, on operation four or five times. The Parachute Regiment, for example, works very, very well with the Gurkhas. They're they're a good fit. They're light infantry. Um, One of the areas, too, in which they will expand is in their specialist arms, of engineers and signals. Mm. What do you make of the announcement then that the Gurkhas will, will step up support for operation, other operations like the NATO Allied Rapid, Rapid Reaction Corps? I think they absolutely need them because, as you say, there is a great deal of concern um, about recruiting right across the piece. I completely agree with your premise uh, in the introduction to this uh, item that I think the the government, uh, uh, and it's causing a great deal of anger, have made a complete mess of the outsourcing of um, uh, recruiting, probably as long as Christopher Lee and myself have been reporting this. The Capita Enterprise has not been a success. 
and the, the result, or rather the non-result, the shortfalls, are there to prove it. Mm, uh, yes, and the army is, is way behind its troop numbers target, although they say that people are actually signing up now, that it is picking up. How long until the figures start to add up? I think it's going to take a long time. They have been so badly down, and uh, successive commanders of the army, and I was with the present one, uh, Mark Carton-Smith last night, uh, that they, they have been worried about retention as well and keeping people in the key trade. I think that what they're really looking for um, is really they want a new deal, a new, a new contract with the armed services. I think, uh, and I've always argued for this, that we've got to go much, much closer to what the Americans did with the GI Bill, where you do give people, if they're coming in, if they're going to be seriously committed to the armed forces, you've got to give them a through life deal so that when they get out, they will get a lump sum and allowance, then they will get help with education uh, on, on the way through. It's, it's always been slightly short comment. Mm. I, I, I'm not a great fan of this government. I'm not a great fan of the Chancellor when he was Secretary of State because actually they, they have been poor on, on, on manpower and there's a lot of way to be made up. But I think that they realise now that they've got to do something about it. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Robert Fox from the Evening Standard, thank you for your time today. Now, more pressure this week on the Chinese telecoms firm Huawei, with the United States warning Germany to ban it from the country's new 5G mobile network. Otherwise, according to America's ambassador in Berlin, it could curb intelligence sharing with its NATO ally. It's the latest stage in a lengthy battle dismissed by Huawei as an American smear. Um, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Professor Clark, the UK is still reviewing Huawei's potential involvement in 5G, but Rusi recently warned that it would be far easier for China to put in a hidden back door to access data than it would be for the UK to spot it. Well, that's possible. They, I mean, what BT say, who are using um, Huawei materials and have been now since uh, 2005, 2006, they, they did a deal with them in 2005 and started to use them in the 3 and 4G networks. But what BT say is that they've stripped a lot of Huawei stuff out of the 4G network and that they won't use Huawei components in any of the core of the 5G. Now, what that means is that, I mean, where Huawei components will be used is in the, you know, the little green boxes at the end of the street and in all the radio masts, but it won't be in the core of the, the actual system. So the theory is that even if um, the Huawei or the Chinese government instructed Huawei to put back doors into their components, in theory, those components will never be in the core of the system. And Huawei are working uh, with the uh, National Cyber Security Center, which is basically the, the outward facing bit of GCHQ, and they have to submit all of their material to them and they discuss it and they go through it. And so Huawei say, I think probably correctly, that they have behaved entirely as a commercial operator, which I think so far they have. The thing is that the Chinese produced a national uh, security law last year which wrote down that any organization or individual must work with Chinese intelligence if so instructed. Mm. And so Huawei can be 100% correct that they are not remotely connected with intelligence today, but tomorrow it might be different. So one has to assume that Huawei bring with it the, the possibility of Chinese espionage on quite a wide spread scale. The problem for Britain is it's a bit too late for us to take to, to, to leave Huawei alone because if we if we broke the arrangement with them and went back to uh, Nokia and Ericsson, some of these companies that we work with who don't have the same technical sophistication, it has to be said, that our, our 5G network would be more expensive and maybe a year behind. 
And so it becomes a political decision, really, as to how much pain we're prepared to take in order to break relations with Huawei and, mm. in a sense, please the United States. Yeah, is, is that likely to happen, Christopher, that the US might say that to the UK and the UK might find itself in this difficult situation? Look, look the, the United States has a big thing about Huawei. Uh, they've got uh, legal challenges uh, about the hierarchy. Uh, they, they've got a thing about China anyway, you know, as economically and industrially, and also they see them as a, as a, as a military threat. Now, they've just told the Germans, that's this, the United States, they've just told the Germans that if you get into bed with Huawei on 5G that involves the intelligence cooperation that we have, that's with, between Germany and America, uh, we will cut you off. We will just break all the connections. You must not do it. Now, as Mike says, it's too late to do that sort of thing with with with, with, with Huawei in, in the United Kingdom. They're running, actually, the United Kingdom employs Huawei on an intelligence level in a place called The Cell up in Banbury in Oxfordshire uh, to go through all these sort of problems. Huawei say, look, we've got no problems. We've just been through it with your own guys. No problems at all. You know, if you buy, you know, if you buy that sort of argument, then you'll buy almost anything. This is what the Americans are saying. So I think future discussions by the end of this month with the Americans and and the British over the future arrangements with Huawei. Well, we'll watch that one with interest, Professor Michael Clark. Thank you very much for your time today. Now, remembrance tourism is a relatively new phrase, but there's nothing new in the idea of tourists visiting pivotal sites from past battles. In Europe, there's been an effort to draw together the path of Allied forces as they liberated countries occupied by Germany during the Second World War. And as the 75th anniversary of D-Day approaches, the finishing touches are being put to a special book guiding tourists along that route. It's called Travel the Liberation Route, and one of its authors is Joe Staines, who's on the line now. Hello, Joe. Now, the book is due to be published to coincide with the D-Day anniversary. Where did the idea come from originally? The idea came from a, um, an organisation called Liberation Route Europe, um, which coordinates various partner organisations, um, you know, war graves, museums across Europe. Um, and they basically um, have this very comprehensive website, uh, which... Um, uh, promotes all these sites and they approach rough guides and um, asked whether interested in doing a book um, of of following the liberation route. Um, not so much a book of the website as a book in its own right. Mm, and a lot of people will know about D-Day and maybe the circumstances surrounding the end of war in Europe, but they maybe know less about what happened in between. Can you learn that from this? Sorry, between when and when? Well, basically between, you know, you may know about what happened in D-Day itself and the circumstances from actually following this route, from following this guide, but what more are you going to get? What more information might you have? Well, different historians start the liberation at different points. We've actually just started it pre-D-Day with the um, Allies, the Americans and the British um, invading Sicily and then Italy. And that overlaps with D-Day. And we basically, the book is organized in chapters going through each of the countries that were liberated, um, including um, some of the, the countries that were liberated um, by, by Red Army troops as well. Um, but essentially, the focus is on the Allied American and Commonwealth troops' progress through France, through Belgium, and 
Luxembourg and, you know, the advance towards Berlin mm. um, from the West with the Russians coming from the opposite direction. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is in the studio listening to this. Christopher. Joe, I think it's a great idea. But I'll tell you something. My old man, my old man said, I did not, this is about Brexit, of course, I did not drive my uh, uh, guys into the beach, onto the beach for D-Day uh, for us just to be pulling out of uh, Europe. And somehow, what you're doing here, you're saying this is the route. This is a lot of people up until very recently would have said one of the reasons that we're Europeans is that we went in and we saved Europe and we saved Europe for us all. Mm. Yes. Well, I, th- I think that's interesting. And actually, I was um, a slight waverer on the on the uh, uh, Brexit referendum. And one of the clinches for me was being in Berlin and visiting a church that had been completely, well, not completely destroyed, but had been turned into a memorial. Um, and as I wandered through it, they'd put back broken bits of sculpture, which had borne, un- you know, bits of limbs, limbs of Jesus, the head of a cherub. And they had... They were incredibly poignant reminders of the kind of physical damage that was done. And, you know, the point is that Britain and France, France and Germany have for centuries been traditional enemies. And since the war, they're the exact opposite of that. We Well, we hoped until recently. Joe, jo, just briefly, um, remembrance tourism in itself, uh, presumably it has an important role to play in keeping memories alive when some of the veterans, uh, as we know, are, are dying. Yes, I mean, I think we've, we are reaching that point where a lot of, you know, the people who are actually involved are right at the end of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found interesting working on this book is that, you know, different countries memorialise the Second World okay. War and the liberation in very different ways. All right, we um, must some... leave it there, Joe, I'm afraid. Thank you very much for your time. Joe Staines, one of the authors of the book, Travel, the Liberation Route, due out later this year. And that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to Christopher and to all of this week's guests. Don't forget, you can get in touch on Twitter. We're at BFBS Sitrep. And while you're online, you can sign up for the podcast. Just search for Sitrap wherever you download your podcasts. Until next time, from me, Ken Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.